All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the staff, uh, pastoral staff members here. Uh, awesome, such an encouraging testimony. That was a huge blessing. And Darren, I didn't know how smart he was. You want to stand up, Darren? We all close. I'm just kidding, Darren. Um, yeah, and just really encouraged to hear uh, that our church, we're taking these practices seriously, and you know, we're looking at another practice today, and uh, the passages that we're going to be looking at on today's practice, it's in the programs. Uh, we're actually looking at three brief passages that are there, and if this is your first time here, one thing that we like to do is when we read uh, from, the, from the Bible, we believe God is alive and is speaking, and we want to rise and honor that. So can we all rise from our chairs as we read from these three passages uh, from Scripture? So the first passage, it comes from Acts chapter 20, verse 35, and the other two passages come from the Gospel of Matthew. So Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it writes, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And Matthew nineteen twenty four. again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Let's all pray together. Lord, would you bless us today and help us as we heard even earlier in the testimony. You, O oh Lord, know how life works better than we do. And so may we pause and posture ourselves to hear, O oh Lord, what uh, you have to say through your power of your spirit and your word. So would you bless, O oh Lord, our gathering together today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Back in college, I experienced what I think many of you have experienced, or if you're in college, what you are experiencing right now, uh, the famous freshman 15. You guys know about that, right? Where the trend is, once you go to college, you will gain 15 pounds your first year. And the reason why we're t- well, that happens is because you're living on your own for the very first time. You're living by your own schedule. You can eat whatever you want. Uh, and so that happened to a lot of us. And so I remember a group of me and my friends, we said, hey, we, we should be healthier. Uh, and we don't like lifting weights. So let's, let's go to the gym and play basketball every day. And so we would go and we, and we played basketball like every day. We would sweat all the time. We worked hard. And yet after a few months of doing this, dude, nothing changed. We still had the fresh and 15. And looking back, I know exactly why. Because after basketball, without fail, we'd always drive to 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee. That was the way we rehydrate ourselves. We'd go to the dormitory and we'd eat dorm food, which is not the healthiest food that's there. And late at night, dude, without hesitation, late night tacos all the time, did not matter. And so looking back, I realized, man, even though we try to exercise and play basketball to lose weight, our lifestyle sabotaged all of our, our efforts. The lifestyle that we're living, it prevented us from actually accomplishing the goal that we wanted to. And the reason why I bring that up is because we're looking at uh, the sermon series, uh, The Practices of Jesus, where we're saying that if we want the life of Jesus, we need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And when you look at these different practices that are up here, uh, every single one I feel like are pretty reasonable. Like silence and solitude, it's literally just taking a few moments to pause, to be still. Bible reading, we're not saying read the entire Bible one day, it's literally like five to ten minutes of just practicing, opening your Bibles and reading. Prayer, it's like, what is it, three to five minutes of just taking time to confess what's on your heart before the Lord. Uh, Sabbath, one day of just resting that's there. Uh, Again, I don't think these practices are that hard. And yet, if I were to do a survey right now of everyone here who's been joining us in this series, how many of you would say that you are regularly practicing these? How many of you say that this is your lifestyle right now? And I think for a lot of us, we might do some of them, maybe once or twice, but it's kind of hard. 
it's kind of hard to really adopt this into our life. And the reason why is, again, I don't think it's because of the practices. If you did all of them together apart from Sabbath, it would take less than 15 minutes every day. And yet it's so hard. Why is that? And I feel like it's because for a lot of us, you're like me and my college friends freshman year. Our lifestyle, it sabotages these practices. We are living a life that makes it really hard for us to include this into us. And I think if, uh, it doesn't seem that way, but if you really did an inventory of your life, I feel like you would recognize like, huh, there's, it's really hard to squeeze this stuff in because I'm a lot busier than I realize. You have things to do, you have schedules set, you have goals to reach, and it just keeps you moving and it all feels so normal and yet it's actually really exhausting. I know some of you right now, you're working hard to save and buy a home. And so you're just hustling, working to buy property, buy property, because you're renting right now. If you're renting with your parents, or you're renting with your roommates, or you're renting with your spouse, and you think once you buy a home, it'll be all good. But look at all the homeowners here. Like, man, they're more stressed than us. Because right now, if you live with your parents and something goes wrong with your faucet, you just tell your parents. You tell your landlord. But if you own a home, who fixed the faucet? You do. You have to maintain all the property damages. You have to do all the upgrades. You have to go to the HOA meetings. It's a lot of stress. Some of you, you have cars right now, and you know that it's a lot of maintenance to maintain your car. Gas is expensive, so you're working hard to save up for that Tesla, that electric car that's there, and you're just working and working and working. And because you're working so much, because you don't want to make sure that you're not behind on payments, uh, you are just going at it all the time. And when you come home, you just need to relax. So what do we do? You subscribe to Netflix or Hulu, or HBO Max, or Disney Plus, or like most of us, all of them. They're all there, and they all have TV shows, and you are pressured, you have them in your queue. I want to watch this, I want to watch this, I want to watch this. It's just kind of filled up. I have like three shows waiting for me after service today, just waiting for my attention, to pay attention and to watch it. And not only that, but because you have all this and you're watching all your shows because you're so tired from working so you can pay all this, all this stuff, you, don't, you feel lazy, so a lot of us, we want to get out of the house, so what do you do? You buy a gym pass, you take classes at jiu-jitsu, you go rock climbing, you get a Disneyland season pass because we want to get out, and those are, or some of us, we have all of those, and those passes are just kind of waiting for us. I have a gym pass that just stares at me every single day telling me I'm wasting my money with this gym pass. It's just hanging there over my head. And if you're a parent with kids, man, you, it's even more crazy because you want to, your kids to have all the opportunities that you did not have, and so you, you don't send them to Kumon or to Princeton Review, you send them to the to Little League and to art school and to dance class, and you send them to all these different things. So you look at a parent schedule, it's just filled with activities that are there. And that's on top of meal preps that all of you do, birthdays and weddings that take up your calendar, vacations that you are planning. Taylor Swift, she's coming to LA, so there's a concert that's coming up that you have to reserve for. You have church activities that you are part of. And so when you look at all this, that feels like normal life. No wonder this is hard. Who has room for this in your life? It's really stacked with possessions, with materials, with activities and goals. And so what ends up happening is this is sabotaged. This is something that's very doable, and yet it's hard, because our lifestyle just cannot allow this to happen. And not only that, but you're tired. There's a reason you come like weary every day, because you have all this stuff just kind of vying for your attention, all this clutter taking up physical or mental space. And so the question is, is there a practice that can help us with the practices? Is there a practice that could make sense of our life in the midst of the craziness? And today we're going to talk about that practice, which is 
the practice of simplicity. Um, today is a perfect Sunday to introduce this practice. Uh, we are worshiping not in the theater, but in a very simple cafeteria, which is one reason why I wanted to move this practice up instead of what the schedule one was. Uh, also, Black Friday is coming up next week, and I wanted you to feel guilty before, not after, your purchases that are there. Um, but another reason why I want to talk about this is because I feel like this practice is going to be really hard to apply. And it's going to be really hard because, one, uh, we rarely talk about this. I know we talk maybe about money or giving or so forth, but the idea of simplicity, again, I'm not sure if any of us have ever heard a message about this in a church setting. Uh, two, I think it's very unfamiliar. A lot of us have different definitions of what we mean by simplicity, and I hope to clarify what I'm meaning today. And three, I think we're blind to our need for it. A lot of us here, we will, might be walking away thinking, yeah, that's for other people, not for me. And that might be the main reason why we struggle following Jesus, because we're even blind to our need of being able to follow Jesus. And so maybe this is the one practice that will unleash all the other practices. Maybe it's the one practice that allows Jesus to practice what he's doing. And so in order for us to understand what this need is, we're going to talk about three things today. Number one, the need for simplicity. Two, the reason for simplicity, and three, the practice of simplicity. And this is not going to be the only time I'm going to be talking about this. I hope to do a whole like four-part series about this. But if you want to know more resources, there's two resources to check out. This book I mentioned all the time, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. It's a great book just to kind of manage your hurried life. And this book I'm reading is called Abundant Simplicity by Jan Johnson. It's a great deep dive if you want to look into that topic more. But until then, we'll talk about today's message. So first, the need for simplicity. So where do we find the idea of simplicity in Scripture? Like, is this something that we find in the Bible? And I would say yes, I think there is. It's in the passages we just read. Uh, Three passages uh, in Acts 20, Matthew 6, and Matthew 19, those are sample passages of the teachings that Jesus gives. Uh, If you ever see Jesus, uh, one statistic that's often given is Jesus talks about in all of his teachings, money and possessions, about 28% of the times. 28% of his teachings consist of your possessions and your money. That means if you came to Jesus' church, he would preach about money and possessions about every four Sundays. It'd be a very small church. But that's what he would do. That was his rhythm. And what's interesting is when you pay attention to how he talks about money and possessions, it's often not commands, but observations. He just makes a statement. So for example, Acts 20, verse 35. Look at that passage one more time. Jesus says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Not you should give, He doesn't say that. He says, it is more blessed. He's just making an observation. Or look at Matthew 6, verse 24. You cannot serve God in money. Not you should not serve God in money. He says, you can't do it. If you understand how money works, it won't happen, Jesus is saying. Or Matthew 19, verse 25. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're rich, it's actually really hard. It's really hard. It's almost like Jesus is just making statements about reality and how it works. I always tell people, if someone's dating or thinking about dating another person and they go to you for advice going, hey, there's this person I like. I'm not sure if I really like them or if it's a good idea, but should I date them? Just know they already made up their mind. Just support them. They have to learn from their mistakes. That's just the way it is. And I've done it enough where I know when they're meeting with me to get my, quote, approval, they're not. They just want me to confirm what they're already going to do. And so I'm there to just pick up the pieces. Because I know how the human heart works when you meet a pretty girl or a good-looking guy. The human heart, it wants what it wants. You just, and I think when you talk to people like that enough, you kind of know that's what happens. Jesus is the same way. He knows how the human heart works when it touches money and possessions. He's not telling you what to do. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. 
because he understands the soul and how it clings and attaches to things where if you want something, you get something, you want more of it and more of it and more of it. And that's why when Jesus actually does give commands about money and possessions, he sounds really hardcore, like super hardcore. So for example, Luke 12, verse 33, look what Jesus says. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's crazy. Like, I know we just kind of gloss over that, but let's imagine we did a sermon series on this. That's a crazy passage. Sell your possessions, give to the, all to the poor. What about your retirement? What about social security? What about mortgage payments? Jesus, he sounds crazy. Or Matthew 6, verse 25, look what Jesus says. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Don't worry about those things then what do we worry about? Because that's what I worry about. There's no, Jesus is telling you to not worry about the one thing that you are always constantly worrying about. It sounds kind of kooky. Or Mark chapter 4, verse 19, look what Jesus says. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The more things you have, it will choke out the good things in life and your life will be unfruitful. Really? Like, I know, again, we hear pastors say this all the time, but is that really something that happens? Because it doesn't feel that way. In fact, if we were really honest, like if this was a, if we had a church Reddit thread, and tonight we all posted on Reddit, this is what we'd say. That's not how my experience is. That is contrary to my experience. In fact, the more money and the more stuff I have, life is actually better. And this is our belief. I mean, who in a community group, if they get a promotion, and they say, dude, I got a promotion this past week, and I got a higher salary, none of us go like, "Uh uh-oh, better be careful, man. You know how money works. Who does that? All of us goes, congratulations. Dude, good job. Awesome. Hey, I'm thinking about buying a home. We're about to get this huge home. It's way bigger than our previous home. Nobody goes like, why are you doing that? You know that's dangerous, right? No one does that. We all go, dude, congrats. Awesome, that is amazing. Or nobody, when they get an iPhone 13, they go, dude, I have an iPhone 13, it's not working as well, I'm gonna get an iPhone 12 now. Who does that? No one does that, because we actually, if we're really honest, we deep down inside believe the opposite of what Jesus teaches. The good life, it's not about avoiding or the lack of material, but it's all about possessions. It's all about upward mobility. It's all about, I am advancing in life, I'm not stagnant, I'm not decreasing, That's how life is for us. How did we get to this place? In that book, Ruthless Elimination, I love the summary that's given where we simply presume possessions and upper mobility, it's normal. That's how we are always supposed to function. And yet we don't realize how modern that idea is. It's a phenomenon that is invented in the past 100 years. Because in the early 20th century, you know 90% of Americans, what they did for a living? 90% means most of y'all, you're not coders in the 20th century. You know what y'all would be? Farmers. You were all farmers back then. Where life was harder, but it was simpler. Life plateaued, it was never you advanced. You never thought about getting a bigger home, a nicer car. You never thought about that. You just farmed. And you just traded your goods. And that was life. And everybody was okay with that. You know what percent of people are farmers today? 2%. I have yet to meet a farmer in my entire life. That's how rare it is. The rest of us have adapted to this idea from agriculture to urbanization, from urbanization to industrialization to production to consumerism, where the economy is now banking upon the fact that there are products being made and people are consuming it, and man, are people making sure that we consume that thing 
There is now something called corporate America, where every single person today, we on average experience 500 different ads that are exposed to us. And no coincidence, we have two times the material that people own today that is opposed to the 1950s. We have way more possessions than anybody in the history of civilization. Why? Because all these things that were once considered luxuries, we now see them as needs. Could you imagine if you went to an Airbnb and the water was not running? There was no running water. You just get a bucket. You would complain. How dare someone does this? How could a house function this way? That was a modern phenomenon. Everybody had water that you got from the bucket 100 years ago. But for us, that's a necessary need now. Electricity, that's a need, that's a must. TVs, internet, cell phone. I remember a day where people once not had cell phones. And all of the Gen Zers like, no way. Can't live without my phone, but all of us older Gen X, boomers, millennials, we remember. These once luxuries that were there, they are now needs. And this happens because uh, marketing theory, they understand how human beings work. They know that we are driven by fear, and so all the advertisements, it goes into our fears. Your life is going to be harder without this. You're going to be left out of the cool crowd if you don't have this. And so we have, because of this environment that we're in, we believe in this idea that the more stuff we have, the happier we are, and the less stuff we have, we have this nagging sense that we don't have enough. And the problem is, even though we live in this context, there are very few voices telling us otherwise. Even in the church, when the church talks about your money, they only talk about the 10%. The 10% that you're supposed to give, that you're supposed to tithe, honor it to the Lord. But the rest of your 90%, nobody touches it. Nobody talks about it. We only talk about Sundays, not Monday to Saturday, what you do with it. And so when that's kind of the context and the environment that we're in, when you see Jesus' teachings about giving to the poor, selling your possessions, super hardcore, what do we do with it? One of two things. We either just ignore it, we pay attention to Matthew 28, Great Commission, or whatever, or... We think Jesus, he's not being literal. Jesus is warning the Kardashians. He's warning the millionaires. Hey, if you get too rich, watch out. But we're not the Kardashians. We just want an upgraded phone. We just want nicer furniture. We just want brand names. We just want a bigger home. What's wrong with that? And so we'll publicly profess that, hey, of course, life, it's not about money. It's not about possessions. But it's still nice to have. It's still nice to have. And here's the trickiest part of it all. This idea that money, possessions, the more of it you have, the happier you are, it's kind of true. It's half true, but only to a certain extent. Uh, there's a Gallup article that was published in 2011 where there are Princeton University professors they were doing this like, super deep research about people's well-being, meaning what makes people happy like, what are the factors you need for happiness to appear in your life? And they discover two strong conclusions. Two strong conclusions where you need two things to make you happy. Number one is something we might expect, which is relationships. Lonely people are not happy. You need deep, loving relationships, at least three to four that are out there. And if you have that, it's just off the charts, undeniable, you will be happier. And two, you need not only loving relationships, but you also need $75,000. $75,000 is the baseline of happiness because what they say is that your happiness increases as your income increases, but once it hits a certain point, your happiness all of a sudden plateaus or starts to decrease. And that magic number of when it plateaus or decreases is $75,000. 
Now, you must think these Princeton guys, they probably were in Wisconsin or in Kansas where the property is all cheap and so forth. I live in LA. I live in Orange County, California. Or what about people in New York or Japan or Singapore? They accounted for all of that. They surveyed all those people. You know what the number was always? 75,000. Sounds crazy. Why is that? Why does happiness stop there? And they don't know. But here's their theory. They, their hypothesis is that 75,000 moves you from poverty to middle class. When you're in poverty, life sucks. It's hard. No one's happy when they're poor. And money makes you better, makes you happier when it helps you get out of poverty. But once you hit middle class, which is $75,000, you have the basics now. Food, shelter, and clothing. Not nice food, not nice shelter, not nice clothing, but you have it. And from there, your happiness level, it is very flimsy of how much money could give you. As they say, quote, one of the uh, researchers quoted like this, no matter where you live, your emotional well-being, it is as good as it's going to get at 75000 And money's not going to make it any better beyond that point. It's like you hit some sort of ceiling and you can't get emotional well-being much higher just by having more money. That's why the richest countries like U.S. and Europe, they're super rich. They tend to be really sad. That's why the poorest countries like Uganda and so forth, they tend to be really poor and really sad. But countries like Thailand and Bangladesh, they're actually the happiest countries because they're middle class. There's something about this that's there where money does not provide the happiness that we need or that we think. And that now ponders the question, what if Jesus was right? What if Jesus, when he talks about money, he's not being idealistic. He's, just not, he's not just talking to the Kardashians. But he's talking to us. And he's letting us know how money and possessions really work. How fleeting it is if we make that the center of our, of our time and our attention. I know personally this is actually really hard for me because I genuinely, even though I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, deep down inside, I believe possessions will make me happier. You know how? Because I have a family right now, and before, I never before my family cared about money. I never envied money. But now as I get older, man, it's hard. Because I have three kids, and I look at my house, I look at other houses, I'm like, you know, those other houses would be really nice. It'd be really nice to live there. I really, my wife and I always dream, we wish we had a bigger home where every, every kid has their own room, we have a yard, and we could run around and so forth. So you know what I do? I normally go on Zillow all the time with no intention of buying. I don't even look in the OC, I look in Kansas. I just check on Zillow property going, oh my gosh, and I send it to my wife, can you believe you could get this for this much amount? I just like send it to her all the time. I know I watch sometimes, uh, my wife and I will watch like Fixer Upper or those home projects, and I don't watch it because of the homes. I just look at the prices. I'm like, man, like if I lived in Indiana, I could have a mansion. Like I just think that way. Or I'll visit a friend, and they have like this new home that's like huge, and I'll go there, and I'll go, man, this is awesome, and I'm genuinely happy for them. And then I drive home, open my garage, I'm like, ah, there it is, there it is. And deep down, I think, you know, if only the market will go down, if only we had more space in our home, if only our kids had a big yard to play in. And I don't say it explicitly, but I think I'd be happier. Life would be better. And that's where I was shocked to learn that, did you know homes today, they are twice the size that they are in the 1950s? The modern home today, they are twice as big as the 1950s, but our families are half the size as the 1950s. They had six to eight kids on average all the time in a home that's way smaller than yours. And it made me think, man, I'm probably a lot more compromised than I realize. 
the materialism, the possessions, the standard of living that I think will make me happy. And no studies that I know have shown that if you have a big home, you will be happy. In fact, some of you have big homes, and I talk to you. You're not that happy. It's comfortable. But it's not like, oh, now that I have a home, I'm so happy. That's, no one thinks that way. As one author says, quote, Americans and Europeans have ever more of everything except happiness. Because our life is filled chasing and pursuing things that actually it's very limited how much happiness it can bring you. And even though a lot of us, we notice at the intellectual level, we know that money and possessions, it's not that important. You don't need to be a Christian to think that. But how can that be a reality? How can this actually be uh, something that we actually really live out and to break this endless cycle of desire and learn contentment? That's where simplicity comes in. So the reason, secondly, for simplicity. Uh, before we talk about it, we should define what simplicity is because we might be all using the same word, but different dictionaries of how we're using it. So a couple, first, what simplicity is not. Uh, by simplicity, what I don't mean is it's not architecture or design. I know sometimes when we think simplicity, you think of modern homes, sleek furniture, and so forth. Nothing's wrong with that. That's not what we're talking about today. Uh, simplicity, we're not talking about organization. You know, some of us, we think Marie Kondo. We think, you know, hey, you organize, you declutter, and so forth. All good. If you do that, that's awesome. That's not what we're talking about today. And by simplicity, what we don't mean is also poverty. We're not saying that we're, we're, we're aesthetics and we avoid all material things. That's not Christianity. Christianities are not aesthetics. So what is simplicity and what do we mean? A couple of definitions. One author, his name is Richard Foster. He defines simplicity as this, quote, Simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle of choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions towards what matters most. You, use, you don't pursue possessions, you use possessions for what matters most. John Mark Comer, he says it like this, quote, Simplicity is limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. I like that one. Limiting the number of things so that we can be free to enjoy the things that really matter. Or here's my simple definition, quote, Simplicity is an intentional lifestyle that limits distractions and makes space in life for people and God. You're intentionally living a life where you're removing distractions so that there's space for the real things for you. And this isn't just a definition, but when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus did not live a life of luxury, nor did he live a life of poverty, but I'd argue he lived a life of simplicity. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, look what it says. Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When we look at a passage like that, we think Jesus was super poor, he didn't have property. But in the first century, that's not how it worked. In the first century, what happened is it was a, hospitable, a hospitality culture. You don't need to earn pro- uh, have property. There was no Airbnbs. You just stayed at people's homes. That's the way it was. You kind of limited what you had in possessions, and that's how Jesus lived. He was not a beggar. He worked as a carpenter his whole life. And then Jesus transferred where he became a rabbi. And we know when he was a rabbi, in Luke chapter 8, it says that people, they finance his ministry. Jesus was not a beggar. But at the same time, Jesus would always eat and stay in people's homes. He didn't take much. In fact, he didn't carry much with them. He instructed his disciples, don't carry much with you. That's the way Jesus lived. It's a simple life. And that's why I think Jesus was able to live the way that he was. Not because he had the superpower that none of us have, but he just chose a practice of simplicity in his life. And when Jesus did that, it helped him to know that this is what life is really about. Life is about people and it's about God, and he filled his life with that. 
That's why in Matthew 6.25, Jesus says, quote, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That was Jesus' mantra. Now today, when you look at followers of Jesus, uh, we don't really look like that. We, in fact, look very similar to the world, if we're honest. And you know who the worst are preachers and pastors? You guys ever see those websites like Preachers and Sneakers and Prophets and Watches where everything looks like Jesus except our materialism. Everything looks like Jesus except our homes and our cars and our spending habits. And again, I understand that's the context we live in, but that is so contrary to what Christians were known for in the beginning. In the book of Acts, the earliest followers of Jesus, they were told that they were sharing everything. All their possessions were something that they collectively had together. The first century Christian Tertullian, he says that Christians, they were known to share everything except their wives. That's what they were known for. The monks, they lived a practice of frugality. The word frugal, it's a Latin word from frux, and the word frux means fruit. They saw this frugal life as a fruitful life. In fact, every major religion catches the idea of the beauty of simplicity. The Stoics in Greece practice simplicity. Buddhists in the East practice simplicity. Quakers in the West practice simplicity. There is a rise even today of minimalists where they, they like live simple lives. That's why Marie Kondo, she's so popular because we just sense that there's something about this clutter that's wrong. There's a magazine called Real Simple Magazine. It came out recently and it's actually doing really well about simplicity. And there's TV shows like Storage Wars where it's all about get rid of that clutter because we recognize in this culture of consumption, there's a desire for the simpler life that's there to prioritize what really matters. And all of us, we've actually had a taste of that. Have you ever noticed if you grew up in the church, when you go to a retreat or you go on a mission trip, how you experience God and people really differently? Like back when I was in high school and in college, I would go to retreats. And I tell you, like every retreat I go to, I would go with the people who I went to church with every Sunday, but I was much closer to them through that one retreat weekend than the whole year of going to church with them. I was much closer to God from that one weekend of retreat than the whole year of Sunday services. Now, why is that? Looking back, I think, oh, it's because, man, the sermons must have been on fire at the retreat. It was the, the worship, the praise team must have been amazing. The people were amazing. Wait a second, we have all three of those on Sundays. They're the same people. You have still preaching. You have worship. What's going on? And it could be that there's something we're doing at retreat that we don't even realize. You're practicing simplicity. All distractions are gone. Your possessions are limited. It's just what you have in a bag. You don't really touch your phone. You are just so undistracted to experience God and his people. Or think about mission trips. If you've been to a mission trip before overseas, man, some of you, you are closer to the people on your mission team than you are with people who you went to church with for five years. You're closer to them. They're your groomsmen. They're the people you invite to your birthdays. God, like, changed your life on the mission trip. Like, that's when you experience God's presence. And we look back thinking, you know, it's because maybe God was on the move and overseas, and God was in the move in our team, and so that, and you want to go back to experience that again. But it could be that, you know what you were doing when you were overseas? You were practicing simplicity. You didn't have your phone. You didn't have much stuff there. You weren't looking to buy things. You were living a very simple life. And that's kind of what's the missing piece that's actually coloring all those experiences. Why is that? And I think one reason why is because when you're overseas or you're on a retreat, 
no one cares what clothes you wear. Maybe the first day of training, like everyone's wearing their makeup and everyone's wearing their, their, their like brand names. But by day five, you're just farting in front of each other. You're just like, whatever, no makeup. It's all good. Like it's, it's all good. No one cares what car you drive at a retreat. You just meet each other for who you are. You become your real self and you meet other people who are their real selves and there's a connection that happens. And that's why it's so sweet. Not just horizontally, but even vertically. God is so sweet. Because there's nothing you have to do. You're just in the presence of God, being there, this simple life. And we think that type of life, yeah, that was great at retreats, overseas. It's not possible here. And yet we have to pause and be like, wait a second, Jesus lived this all the time. Jesus lived a simple life. And we think, well, he didn't have a cell phone. Dude, Jesus, yeah, they didn't have cell phones back then, but they were materialistic like crazy back in those days. It was all about status. It was all about who you hung with. It was all about the clothes you wore. That was Jesus' time. That was his culture. And yet all the time, Jesus, no pretension, no impression he has to make, real Jesus all the time with people. Because Jesus, he was just absolutely secure in his status as the beloved son of God. He knew who he was in his status and he would just walk around not caring this is the real him, going to people. And Jesus says, if you receive Christ in your life, you also receive the same status. The same status as a beloved son of God. Where because in Christ, Christ has died for you, and when he dies for you and you are living in him, you are free from this lie that we all believe. The lie that we all believe on the screen, my stuff determines my status, the size of my house, the size of my income, the brand names that I'm wearing, that determines how people look at me, and that's what we all live. But in Christ, you are freed from that, and instead, my status, it frees me from stuff. It frees me to know that I don't need this to determine my value and my worth. And Jesus lived this out. I love this quote by this 5th century Christian named John Chrysostom. He says it like this, quote, He is not rich who is surrounded by many possessions, but he who does not need many possessions. And he is not poor who possesses nothing, but he requires many things. We ought to consider this to be the distinction between poverty and wealth. When, therefore, you see anyone longing for many things, esteem him of all men the poorest, even though he possesses all manner of wealth. Again, when you see one who does not wish for many things, judge him to be of all men most affluent, even if he possesses nothing. And that's why Jesus and his followers, they were considered rich because they didn't need anything. They didn't need it. They were secure. And the question is, are you like that? Do you feel the security in Christ where no matter what I have, even though I understand the desire of it, I'm good. I'm good. Many of us, we say we believe this, but you don't live like this. You're very anxious about your life. You're very insecure about how people think about you. That's just, it's the gospel. It's an idea that you believe but this idea it has not entered your body where you are actually making a reality for you. And I just keep thinking, what, could it, imagine a church, a community, where you have a bunch of people, there's no pretension. No one cares how we dress. No one cares what car we drive. No one cares your salary. It's all good. We're all secure. Imagine a community like that. That would be a community that looks so different than the world. That would be a community that's secure in Christ. That's a community that practices simplicity. And that now begs the question, which is this last part, how do we practice simplicity? What does this look like? Should you never, never buy a new iPhone? Uh, should you cancel your Taylor Swift 
concert tickets, although I heard Ticketmaster already canceled that, so whatever floats your boat. Should you uh, never uh, buy a nice home? What should happen? And some people, they do this. There's some minimalists who they avoid. Uh, they want to live that mission life, that camp style life, where no distractions, so they have no phones. They have, uh, instead of 20 shirts, they have three t-shirts that cost a lot. They wear the same shirts over and over again. They're reusables and so forth. And hey, man, that's you. Go for it. That's awesome. But for most of us, might be a little drastic. And so what can we do to minimize the distractions in our life and practice simplicity? And one paradigm that I kind of have is the retreat mission paradigm. Like what is it about that that is actually beautiful and that's actually applicable to us today? And let me just suggest a couple of things. And I am still learning about simplicity. I am still growing in this. So just know this is a journey for myself as well. But a couple of things to keep in mind to practice simplicity. Number one, look at your spending. Look at your spending habits. When you are overseas on a mission trip, nobody thinks about until the last day what you want to buy. You're just thinking about food, you're just thinking about the daily needs, and you're happy. You're fine, you're hot, you're tired, but you're happy. You don't don't really mind what you don't have in those moments. And when you're on a mission trip, you're always mindful about your finances, like how much, you know, like how do you spend it because you want to be careful. And the question we have to ask ourselves today is, well, do you care about your finances in that way? What do you regularly indulge in without even thinking about it? What are things you buy and it seems like no big deal because you just buy it? For me, just know like Kindle is a big weakness of mine because when I buy in Kindle, it has that option where it goes just one click. Just one click. I'm just like, dude, I just want to click it. Like, and nobody will know because it's so cheap. Well, my wife will know, but I, you know, it's okay. Like, you know, we're in covenant. So I have that one click that's there. Some of you, if it's not Kindle, but it's your, you just buy apps all the time on your phone. All these small apps, $3, $5, $5 apps, no big deal. Some of you, you just upgrade your stuff without even thinking about it. Even though your iPhone 12 works fine, you have to get the 13 name brand bags. It's no big deal. You buy without even thinking about it. And the question we have to ask is, do you really need those things? Like, do you really need it? Is it helpful or is it adding just clutter to your life? And realize this. Every time you buy something, it's not just costing you money. It's costing you time. It's costing you mental space. Let me give you an example of this. My kids, they want a pet all the time. I'm like, I am not buying you a dog. I've seen many dogs ruin many lives, so I'm not doing that. I'm going to buy the lowest maintenance pet you could imagine, a fish. So I bought them a fish, an aquarium with fishes. And to me, I'm like, dude, it's so simple. I've had fishes as a kid. Just get a fish, just buy an aquarium, fill up with water, feed it every once in a while, all good. And I remember in my childhood thinking, huh, my fish, we didn't have them for very long. And I realized, oh, it's because they died. Because you're not supposed to do that. If you want fish to stay alive, there's a lot of work you have to do. So you know what I do with my fish? Dude, I have to clean the tank, not every few months, every like two to three weeks, I must clean the tank. And when I clean it, it's not just dumping out the water because you have to keep the bacteria to make sure the bacteria is actually there because it's good for the fish. So I get this vacuum and I suck the dirt out of the rocks little by little, all the time. The glass, it does not clean itself. I must scrape the glass so that it looks nice and pretty. After I fill it with new water, I have to check the pH level. I go, okay, is the pH level, is there a lot of acidity in this, acidity in this or not? I have different types of fishes. They all like different types of food. So I have one food for my beta, one food for my guppies, and I have this frozen food for the frogs. I'm just like, oh my gosh. The, the aquarium, it costs about $90, but also four hours of my time every single week. Didn't know that. But that's, that's us. You guys buy new golf clubs thinking it costs a couple hundred dollars. 
Mm-mm. A couple hundred dollars and another golf day of your week because you want to use that thing. You buy new gym material, new working out gloves, new workout clothes. It doesn't just cost you what it's clothes, the price of it. You're going to want to work out hard now because you've made an investment. All those subscriptions, HBO Max and so forth, you're going to have to want to watch it because you paid for it. All the things are just waiting for us to use on the precious little time that you already have because we don't think about time when we buy things. We just think about price. Black Friday's coming up. All the stuff that you want to buy, do you really need it? God is not against stuff, but will this distract you or will this add to your life? Because again, your time is precious. Well, here's the second thing to consider. Look at your phone usage. Look at your phone usage. When you are overseas or on a retreat, you are, for the most part, free from your phone. And it's hard. You feel like you're like a drug addict, like trying to shake because you want to check your updates. But it just shows when we're today, like so there's something really off. You know the average person today spends six hours and 43 minutes online every day. You're not always just you know, hanging out. You're on, you know, it's work and so forth. But every day, six hours and 43 minutes, that is 42% of your life is online. It's crazy. 80% of people check their phones as soon as they wake up. Eight of 10 of us, as soon as you wake up, you will open your phone, check TikTok, check Instagram. We'll do it all the time. And you get this phone and it's filled, sending you all this stuff. So your phone looks like this. Where you, as soon as you pick it up, missed call, YouTube update, Instagram update, Twitter update, like all these updates that are there. And it's just this noise. And no wonder when you go to work, you're just tired because all this stuff is there. Doesn't this seem nice? (sighs) (sighs) You haven't seen that in a while, right? Getting rid of your phone might be too hardcore. Although some minimalists, they do that. There's a reason why minimalists, one of the first things they do is they get rid of the smartphone, they get a dumb phone. Some of us, that's too hardcore for us. But why not just remove your notifications? I get my phone, zero notifications. If you Facebook message me, you won't hear from me for another four hours. Nothing. No Instagram updates, nothing. The only thing is text, because in case my kids are sick or my wife is dying, I have to check that. But everything else, nothing. Why do you need it? Why do you need it? It's causing complexity. It's causing distractions. I know for some of us, there's a, we, there's a practice called digital detoxing, where certain periods of the day you choose not to touch your phone. Uh, I choose not to touch my phone in the morning. I'm like, you know, that's not, that, I'm not going to be one of those guys that checks my phone first thing in the morning. I'm just going to, you know, I'll wait till 12 p.m. I can wait till 12 p.m. Uh, or some of us, some people, uh, they, they don't touch their phones on Sabbath. The whole day is just not there. But the main thing you're going to learn if you detox from your phone is how much you don't need it, how it, there's not that much going on without it. It frees you. Or lastly, for some of us, it might be your schedule, where you are, your schedule is jam-packed. You have concerts every week. You have weddings. You have meetups. You have people you're visiting all the time. And you're like Black Panther, where you're absorbing all the kinetic energy. You're like, oh! And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh! And you explode with just laziness and fatigue and tired. And the reason why is because your schedule is adding up. You're a limited person. And it could be simplicity as you watch out for that. And again, this practice of simplicity, it is not a requirement. It's simply an invitation where you can choose how to live. You can choose not to practice simplicity, but just know if you do that, you'll notice a few things. One is you're not going to be neutral, but instead of simplicity, you'll be self-indulgent often, where you're used to just gratifying your desires. You're going to have a difficult time not getting what you want because you're always used to getting what you want. It's an unfiltered thing for you that's there. 
and you're always gonna feel like you don't have time. No time for God, no time for people, no time for real relationships. You're always gonna feel distracted, bogged down. But choose simplicity, practice it, and you'll notice a couple of things. You'll notice, one, how petty you tend to be about the things that you were hooked on. You'll realize how addicted you are on your phone, your games, to shopping without even knowing it. Practice simplicity, you'll learn not to get what you want. It's okay if you don't get that promotion. It's okay if you don't get that job because you are practicing being okay with letting go of things. And most especially, practice simplicity, and for some reason, you'll feel yourself being more present Present to people, present to God, space to do the practices. You'll start, in other words, to live like Jesus a little bit more. And so, as I invite the praise team up, can I just invite us to pause for a moment? And I know for some of us, this is an idea that could feel kind of uncomfortable, or even we're kind of like apathetic about it, because we feel like we're okay. But wherever God's leading you, can I just invite us to take a moment to just pause before his presence? If you don't know what to say, just be silent and still. Listen to the Spirit speak. But for others, if we know, like, man, yeah, my phone is a thing, or yeah, shopping's a thing, or, you know, I don't know what my thing is, but I just know, like, I get really angry when I don't get what I want. Whatever it might be, if we just take a moment to pause, to pray, to lift up what's going on in our lives and the lifestyle that we have, to consider what Jesus says about possessions, materialism that's there, and if I could just uh, ask us to be honest with the Lord. And so as we have this time, let's take a moment to pause, and then I'll close this all together in prayer. Let's pray.